Good morning. I'm Danielle Stopek, and I'll be reading uh, Luke 11, 33 to 54. No one, when they've lit a lamp, puts it in a hidden cellar or under a bushel basket. Rather, they put it on a lampstand in order that those who enter may see the light. The lamp of the body is your eye. Whenever your eye is simply clear, your whole body is illuminated. But when it's distorted with evil, your body also goes dark. So watch out, lest the light shining in you is darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is illuminated with no part that's dark, then it's going to be illuminated completely, as when the lamp illuminates you with its brilliance. Once, as Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to share a meal at his home. So he entered there and reclined for a meal. Now the Pharisee, as he watched, was amazed that he didn't first plunge his hands in water before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees are cleansing the outside of the cup and platter, but your own inside is full of fraud and evil. You unthinking people, didn't the one who made the outside also make the inside? Instead, give over what's within you to be a gift of compassion, and look, everything becomes clean for you. But alas for you, Pharisees, because you're tithing the mint and the rue and every vegetable, and you're passing by the justice and the love of God, these things you needed to do without neglecting the others. Alas for you, Pharisees, because you love the seat of honor in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Alas for you, because you're like unmarked graves, and the people don't realize when they're walking over them. Now in response, one of the interpreters of the law says to him, Teacher, when you say these things, you're also insulting us. Then he said, Alas, also for you the interpreters of the law, because you're loading the people with burdens hard to carry, while you yourselves aren't reaching to even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Alas for you, because you're building the tombs of the prophets, but your own fathers killed them. So you're witnesses, and you're approving the deeds of your fathers that they killed them, and now you're building a monument. And that's why the wisdom of God said, I'll send them to the prophets and emissaries, and some of them they'll kill and persecute. That's so the blood of all the prophets that's been poured out from the world's foundation may be reckoned with by this generation. From Abel's blood down to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I'm telling you, a reckoning is coming from this generation. Alas for you interpreters of the law, for you seized the key of knowledge. You yourselves didn't enter, and you stopped those who were entering. When he departed from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be fiercely hostile and to interrogate him closely about many things, lying in wait for him to ensnare anything that came from his mouth. If you do not or have not gotten a copy of the, the notes for today, the scripture reading that you just heard Daniel read for us so beautifully, and the notes that I'm going to be following, if you've raised your hand, we'll... Uh, make sure that one gets to you so that you can uh, have that. Welcome to the other side of Daylight Saving Time. Here we are in this Eastern Standard Time in November, and still it's a hot day, and so I don't know uh, what to make of it. Then marathons going. They should be probably reaching their goal, the, those that are the fastest almost at this moment, and, and so on. But, ah, what am I going to do with Kyle? And Alexander. 
I'm not going to say much right now. We grieve the planned departure of Kyle and Alexandra. Well, it's not so much Kyle and Alexandra. We, Sonia and I grieve the departure of Violet and Rowan. Uh, no, both of them, both of them, please. But that's my selfish reaction. But it's also my reaction of grief for, for this, this congregation, our loss of such beautiful and faithful people as a congregation. But for Kyle and for Alexandra, this, is a, this move is an opportunity for new ministry, new development, new growth in a really good setting for both of them. And we will support them and pray for them in every possible way. So I'm not going to say much more about that right, right now. There will be opportunities for talking about it. Sonia and I, of course, are just trying to, to fight it off, but at the same time let it inside ourselves and to uh, take it in and uh, deal with that. But before I begin the, the sermon today, I, I did want to mention one other uh, thing. Uh, the passing of a great name, a great person in, our, in, the, in the city, the death of Dr. Calvin Butts of pancreatic cancer after 33 years as senior minister of the Abyssinian Baptist Church, which is one of the oldest and most influential African-American churches in the United States. He died just over a week ago, and his funeral was at Abyssinian Baptist uh, yesterday. We pray for his ongoing influence, his influence in just in so many areas, social justice, but also theology and preaching and spirituality, and uh, for his family and for the church that he led for so many um, years. Well, you heard um, Danielle read this passage of scripture. It's kind of easy to let it flow over us, but when you start thinking about it and listening to the things that are said in it and how one thing butts up against another, it's a challenging text. <clears throat> and one that, that has a lot that's sort of, well, it's not hard, hard to, well, some of it's hard to understand and because of who we are and who that period of time was. Luke is leading us as we go along with Jesus in his journey to Jerusalem. He's headed toward Jerusalem, toward the, toward the climactic conflict. And as he goes, and we'll find this more and more, the, the intensity of things increases as it goes along. If you just go back a little bit in our, in our journey, we've seen him send out the 72, that they go out and they have authority and they teach in all of these villages and everything, then they return to Jesus. And Jesus prays about them that they're infant, infants, but God, but God has allowed them to see and allowed their eyes to see what prophets long for. And we saw an incident uh, in, in chapter 10 where this law expert, um, this uh, lawyer, as it's often translated, came to Jesus wanting to know what is necessary to do in order to make sure that I have a part in the age to come, that I can inherit the life of the age to come. And Jesus asked him, what, what do you, how do you read the law? What do you, what do you say? And he gave the surprisingly, it blows you away almost if you're familiar with the Gospels, he gave the right answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your self, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
It's the right answer. Jesus says so. He says, go and do that. But then, of course, he's a lawyer. He's an expert in the law. And he asks, but that word neighbor, what does that mean? And he wants that defined. And so Jesus leads further and takes us deeper and tells the story of, that we know as the story of the Good Samaritan. We've seen the story of the two sisters, Martha and Mary, who welcome Jesus as he's going from place to place and so forth. Both of them are wonderful people. Both of them are doing good, explicitly doing good. But still, one her good is a little bit more defined by sort of standard roles that women were to do. And the other chooses a better course as she sits at Jesus' feet as one of his disciples. And Jesus is explicit about that in talking to Martha about it. She's chosen the good part, and it's not going to be taken away. We've seen Jesus teaching his disciples about prayer. We've studied the Lord's Prayer. And then Jesus, after that, talks about persistence in prayer. And then just asking and seeking and knocking. You know, don't hold back in this praying process. Have confidence in God because God wants to give you the good. He wants to give you not only good things. He wants to give you himself, his Holy Spirit, into this. But then we see the other side, too, as people come and say, all this stuff that Jesus is doing is by the power of Beelzebul. He's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. And Jesus talks uh, about that, of course. We can't go into that again. But he talks also about this image of a human being that has had an unclean spirit. And it departs. But really nothing happens in that person. They're clean and tidy inside, so to speak, but the spirit just goes off and comes back and finds it all clean and tidy and then goes and gets seven other uh, daimonia and brings them back. The inside of a person has to be filled up. They need to hear that message like, like Mary was hearing Jesus, like so many others, even, even like the law expert was hearing Jesus. And then they need to do that as Jesus had in, instructed them. I don't want to just have a clean, tidy inside ready for an unclean spirit and his friends to come. How do I fill my inside? And so in a text like ours here, just a little bit later down in the flow of the text in the 11th chapter, Jesus picks a series of, I don't know exactly how to call it, I, I, the, the phrase that I've picked is a flowing metaphors, if I can do it. They're challenging because they're not obvious, and they shift. So you really, it's sort of, it's kind of stimulating your thoughts on a lot of different levels and trying to get you to think about these things and shifting them back and forth so that you're, it's not easy just to get a nice, neat lesson out of it. They talk about physical things, certainly, a lamp and all of that, but they also talk about inner light and inner darkness within me as a person, not just, not just sort of shining a light down my throat, but in, my, in who I am. 
the light that illuminates my inner self. But he also he still calls that my body, my body within, my self in that sense. He talks about the physical eye. The eye is the lamp of the body. And it shines out. It's a lamp. And it receives light back. Or that it's blocked from seeing reality because it's blocked by, by evil. The seeing is not just clear vision, which we all want to have. And, you know, the reason I wear contact lenses so that I have clear, relatively clear vision here. But it's also how we see the world, how we see God, how we see everything, how we see reality. And there's the danger about this darkness being the light that's in me and so forth. Jesus starts our text, verse 33, with one of his, I take it because it's repeated and that seldom happens, one of his favorite proverbs about lighting a lamp. Indeed, Luke has already quoted this proverb. and It was probably a proverb that Jesus used in many different situations and times. He quoted it with a variant back in chapter 8 at the end of the parable of the sower. If you remember the parable of the sower, it ends talking about the, the good seed that falls on the good soil and it bears a great deal of fruit. These are the people that hear the word and they hang on and they bear a harvest by their their in endurance. And he juxtaposes that with this word about the, uh, about the lamp. Just to read a, a few, a, a sentence or so from that, Luke, Luke 8, 15 through 16, they, the good seed and the good earth and so forth, they are those who they hear the message with a heart that's excellent and good, and they keep holding on. They bear a harvest by their endurance. Now, no one, when they've lit a lamp, covers it with a pot or puts it under a bed. So very similar. Rather, they put it on a lampstand in order that those coming in may see the light. It's almost exactly the same, shifted just a little bit. But Jesus loved that, that image. So whether it's seed-bearing fruit or a lamp that's giving its light, the images talk about what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is teaching. That he has, in those, the first verse, he has lit that light. He has lit a light, a lamp. And it's not to be put under anything that, is to, that can hide it. But rather it is to shine out and make a difference in the, light, in the lives of those that it, that it touches. And it, it's something that, as you read the Gospel of Luke, it's an idea that's been anticipated, both back when Zechariah was talking about John the Baptist at the birth of John the Baptist. He wasn't the Baptist yet. But at the birth of John the Baptist, he, he's talking about what God is doing and bringing this light through him as he's anticipating it. But also uh, when, when Mary and Joseph bring little Jesus to the temple to be blessed there, and a man named Simeon, who's a, who's a prophet, uh, takes him in his arms. And he says, he talks about how God is, can take him now and bless him. He has blessed him already. My eyes saw your act of salvation, he says to God. That you prepared in the face of all the peoples a light for a revelation, even to Gentiles, and for glory for your people Israel. 
Now his father and his mother, Joseph and Mary is they're talking about, were marveling over the things being said about him, that is about Jesus. That's what God was bringing about through in Jesus. It's, it's what we, we read about in our opening reading, our call to worship this morning. Looked at from a different perspective later on, looking back at all that had happened in Jesus. And just you go back and read those words from Colossians and you see the grandeur of all that it is. It is light to see. It is Jesus in all that he says and all that he does. It is God's light coming into the world. But then Jesus shifts to the image to another image. And he takes that image of the lamp, but he wants to make it more personal for us, not just sort of a proverb uh, in, in feeling, but to, to highlight the idea of our human choice and our response in relationship to the light. So Luke 11, 34 and 35, the lamp of the body is your eye. Whenever your eye is simply clear, nobody actually knows how to translate that word right there, but um, it's translated in a lot of different ways if you if compare. But it, it, it basically simply means simple. And I take it as simply clear. Then your whole body is illuminated. But when it's distorted with evil, when it's evil, your body, your body also goes dark. So watch out, lest the light shining in you is darkness. Woo! Now this image is a lot harder for us. We think of light and of vision and eyes and so much so differently from the way people did in ancient times. We, we think of a camera eye. We, think we know that, you know, that we think we know anyway, the idea of light reflecting off of things and reflecting into our eyes and through the lens and onto the retina. It's like a, like a camera with a lens and, and then film in it or a, a digital sensor in it and so forth. They didn't think that way in, the, in ancient times. They, nobody actually knew how the eyes worked, but there were lots of different theories. The most common one and the one that you see most in, in the way that people write about it is the idea of a, of a fire inside the eyes somehow this fire, and there were whole myths about this, of the lighting of the fire inside the eyes. A fire that shines forth from the, from the eyes. So you get the, the image that sometimes said that when someone's growing old, their, their, their eyes are growing dim. Namely, that the fire is not as strong, and that, thus they can't see as, as well. So there's this fire that shines out from the eyes. Some described it as almost like, well, they described it actually as a pneuma, as a, as a spirit or some sort of like air that came out through the, what they thought was the, the optic nerve, because people had done anatomy, and they thought, they, they thought it was a little tube that shot this pneuma out into the, into the world through the eye, and, and then that interacted with things and came back, and we saw in that, in that sort of way, because people did not know about light. It's hard to see light. Well, it's easy to see light, but it's hard to see it as it's going by and how we, what it, what it all is and so forth. It's still today. Is, our, is light a wave or is it 
particles, these, what are photons, and how do they do it, and how, how is it that they can travel at the speed of light, and so forth. There are all kinds of questions, but back in those days, it was a little bit differently conceived of. So Jesus uses this ordinary kind of language. The lamp of the body is your eye. And if your eye is simply clear, if it's open to see reality, if it can take in this reality of Jesus, if it can take in the reality of God as well as all the other reality around, then, then you're in a, in a good shape. So this, this image shifts from thinking, though, just, just about the physical eye to the inner vision of illuminating the body, illuminating the self. The body here in all of this stands for the whole self. It's not just, as I said, shining a light into my eye or into my mouth, and that you don't, everybody knew that the body was solid and you don't, don't illuminate. It's not like a, a room inside there that you can shine a lamp, a lamp into. But still that, as far as the way that a person lives in their body, it's as though it's a habitation. That's the, remember, that's the image that he had used about the person who had lost the evil spirit and he was empty and clean and swept and neat but needed something inside. And so Jesus is just using these common metaphors for that day and helping people to think about it. Do we see with simple clarity that can take in the whole reality, including God's life? Or is our vision distorted or blocked by evil so that we can't see clearly or can't see at all so that our body, our self, goes dark. As Jesus says, the light that's shining in you is darkness. Watch out lest that happen. Jesus liked for his disciples to think about the way they see things and how that can be distorted. We might think about a different sort of image that he used that's very well known. The image that you remember from the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain since we're studying Luke, we'll talk about the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, 41 to 42. That image that's so well known of the speck in the eye. Why is it that you notice the speck that's in the eye of your brother or sister? But that log that's in your own eye, that never crosses your mind. I think a log in your eye would pretty much block your vision. I'm not sure. Do you, you think it would? If I have a log or a big beam in my eye, it's going to block my vision here so that I can't see. So how can you bring yourself to say to your brother or sister, please allow me to take out that speck that's in your eye while you yourself don't notice the log in your own eye? You're acting a role. First, get that log out of your own eye, and then you'll see more clearly to remove the speck in your brother or sister's eye. So now, if your eyes are clear to see God's light, you can be completely illuminated inside and out. It's though it's, as though it's shining on the outside of your body and also shining on the inside of you, inside of yourself. And both can be united, the uniting of inside and outside. Your visible practice, what you do in your life, what you do with your body, so to speak, and that inner reality and meaning that's illuminated and shining with God's love. 
You hear that message of God and you do it and the two come together. Just remember that expert in the law that we referred to who answered Jesus so well and asked him about the neighbor. Love God with your whole heart and self and mind and strength and love neighbor as your, your neighbor as yourself. When we see and experience God's love, as Jesus takes on this task of interpreting for him this passage, then neighbor can't be taken as a limiter, as a border, as a definition that marks the boundary of my love, that I love my neighbor, anybody that's really close to me, part of my own family, part of my own tribe, part of those who are close around me. Love for God and God's love for me leads me to see every person as someone that I can approach, that I can draw near to as a neighbor. I make myself a neighbor to them, and especially if they're in need. That's how Jesus' understanding of the law worked, not as boundary conditions, but as seeing a way of knowing God and drawing near to God and then living out what God was doing. And these images that are in these first verses prepare us to consider the most notable religious people in Jesus' world that show up in the rest of the passage, the well-known, influential Pharisees, as well as a grouping of those or a grouping alongside them, namely the experts in the law. So Jesus goes to this place to dine with the Pharisees on invitation. Chapter 11, verses 37 and 38. Once, as Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to share a meal at his home. Nice. So he entered there and reclined for a meal. It's evidently a banquet because they're all leaning back on cushions and they have their food in front of them and so forth. Now the Pharisee, as he watched, was amazed that Jesus didn't first plunge his hands in water before the meal. The word actually here for plunge your hands in water is baptizo, it's to baptize. He didn't baptize his hands before the meal. So it starts well. Jesus at a Pharisee's banquet, reclined. But as Luke has already set up our expectations through the course of the gospel, as he, as he shows, the Pharisees often challenge Jesus on all kinds of things. They challenge Jesus on his failures to keep the Torah rigorously. And if you go back in, through Luke, you know, just think back across some of the things. It's especially in chapters 5 and 6, it's this, this series of things are just set up. In, about forgiving sins when he's forgiving when he's healing someone about eating with tax collectors and sinners over in chapter 5 verses 27 to 30 about not fasting and his disciples not fasting in 5:33 about plucking grain on the sabbath and rubbing it in between their hands and eating it on the sabbath about healing on the sabbath about a sinful woman that comes in and sits at Jesus feet and and cries and wets his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. And, and the, the, the Pharisee that is, whose house he's eating at that particular time thinks that that means that he doesn't, is not a prophet. Otherwise, he wouldn't allow this person to even touch him. And that's just chapters 5 through 6. Oh, well, actually 7, 5 through 7. 
this whole thing was a, a, about the way Jesus approached the interpretation of Scripture and the way the Pharisees and the teachers of the law interpreted it was a major debate with high stakes for what Israel and Israel's God was all about. Everybody knew the story of Israel that you get in the Old Testament, that Israel was punished in exile for sins. Almost all reform movements in, in Jesus' time <clears throat> drew the conclusion that Israel needed to be more rigorous in keeping the law. And there was certainly a sense in which Jesus could agree with that, at least what he meant by saying that. Not a, not a jot, not a tittle of the law will pass away until everything is accomplished. Even John the Baptist sometimes wondered about Jesus. And you remember he sent, sent his own disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one to come or do we wait for somebody else? Now Jesus comes into a Pharisee's home and he doesn't plunge his hands in the water for purification. Why would you have to do that? There's not, actually not even a any a real regulation for an ordinary person going to a dinner to do that in, in the Old Testament. But the, it was part of the Pharisees' vision of Israel. The Pharisees wanted Israel to be a nation of priests, like they're described in, in Exodus 19, a royal priesthood. And purity, uh, they wanted purity washings, as if a person were entering the temple every day of their lives. It marked the distinct identity of Israel as over against all other peoples. A people who belong to God, who want to practice purity, who require purity, who practice the Sabbath, who practice fasting, who practice separation from sinners and sinful people. Now, as the story unfolds, Luke omits some of the things we'd love to know, namely how, how the argument got going and, and so forth, whether it was right at the beginning of the dinner and everything just exploded immediately or whether it was well along in the meal and so forth that where, where somehow the, the feelings of the, of the Pharisee came out that, that Jesus just was not being proper. Jesus actually agreed with the Pharisees about a lot, about a lot of things, especially most notably about the resurrection of the dead and all of that. But Jesus had a radically different vision of God's calling to his people and the world. God wanted all barriers to be broken down so that his promise to Abraham could be fulfilled. Namely, that in you and your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God cared much more for inner transformation of life than for precise outer performance of boundary regulations, if I can put it that, that way. It's a kind of loaded way to put it, but I think it fits in the context of this. And so, whenever it finally comes up, uh, I have sort of a feeling that the Pharisee was sad that he brought it up because Jesus responded very forcefully, shall we say. Luke chapter 11, verses 39 to 44, as you look on your text there. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees are cleansing the outside of the cup and the platter, but your own inside 
Notice the shift of the metaphor from an outside of a cup or platter to the inside of a person. Your own inside is full of fraud and evil. You unthinking people. Don't you know God? Do you know what God's about? That's, the que that's the, always the fundamental question about this. Don't you know? Didn't you know that the one who made the outside also made the inside? Both of them are the place of God. Instead, give over what's within you, that place that has become a place of fraud and evil, to be a gift of compassion, where the compassion of God is expressed from your inside out. And look, you won't have to worry about plunging your hands in water. Everything becomes clean for you. <sighs> Boy, that's a frustrating thing to try to deal with if you're a Pharisee because it just it goes against every feeling and sensibility, everything that you know is right. But alas for you Pharisees, because you're tithing, you're tithing. All the irony here. You're tithing the mint and the rue and every vegetable. And you're passing by the justice and the love of God. These latter things you needed to do, to do the justice of God, to do the love of God. It doesn't mean you have to neglect the others without neglecting the others. The others are fine. It's great. But there's, it's like with Mary and Martha. Martha's doing really good things. But Mary's chosen the one thing that's needed and that's what Jesus talks about here this is what you needed to do without neglecting the others alas for you Pharisees because you love what do you love you love the seat of honor in the synagogues the recognition of your point of view and the recognition of who you are and the recognition of this your rigorous way of thinking about God and, and the law and you love the greetings in the marketplaces, rabbi, and all of these salutations. Alas for you, because you're like unmarked graves. And the people don't realize when they're walking over them. It's really important in, the, in this to get the irony of it that we don't just villainize the Pharisees. This is often said, and no doubt have heard it before. The Pharisees were profoundly devoted to keeping the Torah, keeping the law of God. One of their favorite phrases that comes up in the Mishnah, the compilation of the traditions of the Pharisees in many ways, is that they wanted to make a fence around the law, and Pirkei Avot is where this occurs. God's people need clear boundaries toward the nations. They need purity laws. They need tithing. They need honoring leaders who call for rigor and separation. They need those markers. And for them, this was not play acting. It certainly could lead to hypocrisy or play acting. But for many of them, most of them, I really believe, it, it was really doing what's important. The visible rights mark a boundary. They define an identity that's visible to the world. They mark the purity and holiness of God and of God's people. But for Jesus, what's crucial is not separation from outsiders, but that union with God. And the focus on the boundaries and the boundary regulations 
had passed by really being devoted to God's justice and God's love and learning that, loving God with your whole heart and self and mind and spirit, as mind and strength, oops, sorry, mind and strength. When they watch Jesus, they watch his hands, whether they're plunged in water, not his heart of love and inclusion and healing and forgiveness and teaching. Alas for the Pharisees, Jesus says. Alas. They're clearly religious. Jesus would never dispute that. But their primary aim is people, marking a distinct identity that marks separation. Their aim is not knowing God. And all of us <clears throat> probably have stories about, you know, whether it's from history or from our own experience of Christian groups that are enticed by those boundary markers. If you're not inside the church, whether it's the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church or a vast array of Protestant groups, including our own, you're outside God's love and outside our concern. <clears throat> if you don't practice worship or rites or say the same creed as we do, those things are the things that define us. They're our boundaries. Then we can't consider you, uh, we can't consider each other as fellow Christians. If you're a woman, and then you're excluded from most of the roles of leadership. If you're divorced, you're living in permanent sin. If you're an LGBTQ person, you've chosen to rebel against God and are excluded, etc., etc. The regulations can easily get as fine as the mint in the rue. I can so remember, Sonia, first telling me, I hadn't heard this one before, but it made sense. I knew exactly where it came from, that where she grew up. You couldn't play cards. Well, of course, you, you couldn't play with face cards. If you played with rook cards, it was all right. Because rook cards were not face cards that were used for gambling and so forth. So you have to know exactly where the line of salvation falls. For Jesus, everything moved from hearing God's logos, God's message, like Mary did. It started not with the border but with the center, a change, the center of the person, the center that is God, the change of a person from the inside out. That is what is fundamental, that change of heart. God made the inside and the outside. God loves all people, even sinners. God loves the outside of the cup and the inside of the cup, the outside of the person and the inside of the person. Just think of these things. Tithing mint. Just think how devoted you need to be. That you go out in your garden and you pull off all the leaves of your mint, mint plants. And you measure them out so that you make sure that 10% of those go into the, into the temple service, into the Le Levites. Rue. Nobody even uses rue anymore. It's kind of a bitter thing, but that evidently was used somewhat back in those days and, and so forth. They did that with rue. And, and all their vegetables. If you got 10 carrots, you got to bring one of them. If you got 10 potatoes, you bring one of them, and so on, and so on. They, Jesus says, but you're not doing God's justice. You're not doing God's love. That's what you need to be doing rather than counting out mint leaves. It'll take up all your time. If you start doing God's love among people.
They love the seats of honor because it's the rigorous who deserve honor and who get those positions. And then there's that devastating picture, uh, insult, certainly some felt as is an insult. They're like unmarked graves. You go back and read Numbers 19, 10 through 20, if you touch a bone or a body or step on a grave, you're impure for a full seven days. You've got to go through a process that purifies you, that's rather rigorous itself if you're going to be purified in the, in the course of those seven days. But what if there's a grave there that you don't see? There's just grass growing there, and you walk over it. Then you don't know to go through all that, and you don't know how to have, so you're, you're polluted forever. And Jesus says, that's really what you become. You look great. You're like that classic family that fights in their car all the way to church and they get out of the car and they put on their church face and walk through the door. Well, there's another guest. He's a law expert. A scribe, probably, maybe. One of the resources for the Pharisees. But as we've already noted, Luke shows that not all of these people were alike. Back in chapter 10, you remember the the story of the Good Samaritan? There's a person who gives an answer to the question. Jesus says, that's exactly right. Do that. And this person, though, that's at this dinner feels the burn of Jesus' words as a personal judgment, an insult. But Jesus doesn't apologize. He confirms exactly what the, 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 the... conclusion that the law expert had drawn. Jesus said this is chapter, verse 46. Alas also for you, the interpreters of the law, because you're loading the people with burdens hard to carry while you yourself aren't reaching to even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Their interpretations of the law was, as almost all the reform movements of the time, rigorous exacting, separatist, no healing on the Sabbath day. But how can you heal on the Sabbath day unless God's doing it? And if God's healing on the Sabbath day, how can it be wrong? But no, you can't heal on the Sabbath day. The law becomes a burden rather than a delight that it was intended to be, like you see in Psalm 119, for example. The idea of the burden actually was attractive. It's still attractive to so many religious people. We need to do hard things for God, demanding things to show who's really devoted to God. So you set the bar high. Every hour of each day, every action is going to be constrained in some way by a strict application of the law that ends up excluding most of Israel in that time and certainly all of the Gentiles. Then they read the Old Old Testament, they read the Hebrew Scriptures, of course, and, and they want to affirm all the prophets. But Jesus says you're practicing the external piety that those very prophets deplore. Just think about what... Micah says God wants from you. The famous verse in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. He's told you what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, 
to love, steadfast love, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God wants. Don't build two monuments for the prophets. Rather, follow the vision of God that the prophets proclaim. But what they were doing also did something worse. And that's when gets into that whole section about the, the persecution of the prophets and, and all of that. It not only excluded foreigners, it fed the violent vision of zealots that wanted war for Jewish independence. Their interpretation of the law was leading toward violent conflict with the Gentile world, especially with Rome, that came about in the year 64 and on through 73. That is the reckoning of blood that's talked about in, in those verses. Their exclusion was blocking God's intention to include all people, all nations in his salvation, as he promised to Abraham. They were continuing that ancient pattern of opposition to God's purposes that the wisdom of God's voice in, the verse, in verse 49 carries. With loaded words, Jesus anticipates that reckoning of blood that would come with such warlike intentions. Verse 52. Alas for you interpreters of the law, for you seized the key of knowledge. You yourselves didn't enter, and you stopped those who were entering. They have the key of knowledge to interpret God's message. But they control, or they do control for many people access to God. They analyze and define, but they don't engage God. God is distant, maybe ominous, not a father overflowing with self-giving love. They lock the door. God becomes a source of success to be parceled out to those who follow the rigorous program. A real encounter with a loving father as one sees through Jesus, as one hears in his prayers, as one hears in every conversation that he has with people, opens eyes to illuminate not only the outside but the inside of everything, letting God's light in. That would create a path of peace as is talked about numerous times in the Gospel of Luke. It could illuminate, cleanse, and enrich all of life. Well, this text doesn't end on a very promising note. Jesus is very straightforward and forthright about all of it. But as Luke tells us, when he departed from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be fiercely hostile, to interrogate him closely about many things, lying in wait for him, to ensnare him in anything that came from his mouth. And so we're on the way to Jerusalem and to that climactic confrontation. But Jesus, on that way, as he interacts with people and is willing to praise any interpreter of the law who actually goes to the heart of God in his interpretation of the law. We see the way in which Jesus stands with such an edge over against all of the people of his time. This person that people recognized as being 
so wonderful, so demanding, so amazing, and wanted to understand who he was and what he was about. And as that happens, that light is lit. The lamp that the first verses of our text talk about that illuminates the outside and the inside of who we are. Amen. Let's bow for it in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us, Heavenly Father, that we may listen to Jesus, to learn from him who you are and what it means to follow you, what it means to seek your justice, your love, to do your justice and your love in our world. How it may not be for us sometimes in our limited ways as satisfying as being a part of a group that we know is clearly defined and we're on the inside and others are on the outside. That we are inside with you and your light is challenging us to go out in love to anyone that's in need and live out your justice and your love. Help us, Heavenly Father, to hear Jesus and to learn from him. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Would you stand as we share in benediction and go forth to find out who won the marathon, so to speak. <laughs> May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Greet one another and go forth to serve.